Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Rishi, the CTO at Yield Street, and we discuss their mission to democratize access to financial investments, thoughts on building architecture for a future that isn't clear yet, and how to pull yourself out of the weeds as a CTO when experiencing massive growth. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Joel, how's it going? It's great. Good to meet you. It's so good to meet you. I'm really excited. Where are you calling in from today? Uh, Midtown Manhattan. That's our, uh, that's that global headquarters of Real Street. Is it, is it like a ghost town now there? Uh, a little less so than it was about a couple of months ago, but yeah, uh, it's weird. It's weird to look down on Park Avenue and see like a sixth of the number of cars that you typically see during the rush hour. So it's weird, man. It's uh, it's strange to be in the city. Uh, a little less so now, but May and June, where it's like, what is going on? You know, how are you feeling? First time I walked through Times Square. I mean, it's you know, it's good. It's the city's kind of waking up a little bit, and it's always good to see this. You know, there's so much velocity in the town in general. So it was just bizarre. It's like half expecting zombies to come walking out in the middle of the day, but you know, luckily it's coming back. Um, hopefully, it just continues that way. Are you prepared for the zombie apocalypse? <clears throat> when are we not? I know, right? No, it's just gonna happen. <laughs> No, but man, I'm telling you, walking through Times Square at 11 a.m. and not seeing more than two people is just weird. I knew you were going to be a, a, a good person to talk to when I was reading your bio and it said that you want to retire within walking distance of the Lagavulin distillery. <laughs> yes. Work is underway for that. <laughs> yep. Yep. Scoped out a little cottage and stuff. I, I take it you're a Scotch person as well. Uh, our producer, Jake, is really into it. He's been over there to visit. And uh, I I learned about it through the show Parks and Recreation. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. No, interesting that I discovered Lagavulin through a TV show as well. It was in an episode of The West Wing. Oh. So I was just curious, like, what is your origin story? How did you get started like, with technology? Oh, that's just fun. So um, so my, my family owns a bookshop or owned a bookshop back in India where I grew up. And um, I used to work there in the summers. And um, <clears throat> one summer in 1986, I think, I was 13 or 14 years old. And I saw this book and it was called You and the Computer. It was like, uh, like it was a kid's book, really. It's, it was to get little uh, young young adults and teenagers. And computers in the 80s, in India especially, were a fascinating new thing, right? You know, world around in general, but certainly back in India. So I started reading this, and I was like, this is incredible. I want to do something with it. So um, uh, there was an opportunity in my high school uh, at the time where a gentleman came in and started teaching basic programming. And uh, on weekends, he would bring in a little like keyboard and a monitor, and uh, he would give some, give these like fun exercises, actual programming exercises to work on. And I wrote my first program when I was fourteen to a little program in BASIC to try convert Celsius to Fahrenheit or something like that. And I was hooked, you know. And especially once we learned loops, and you can like you you're able to build patterns using ASCII characters. And hey, this is an interesting looking carpet that you can build just with three lines of code. And that was it. That was the kicker. So that's kind of how I got fascinated with 
the idea of computers, right? You know, and uh, uh, they were nearly not as ubiquitous as they were as they are now. And then, um, as I kind of went to college and stuff, uh, I went to undergrad back in India, and computer science was not offered as a program in the school that I went to. I would have had to move to a different city, one that I don't particularly enjoy living in, Bombay, or Mumbai, as it's called now. So uh, I couldn't study computer science uh, as a major uh, in undergrad. So um, I did mechanical engineering. But when I came here for grad school, um, I got the opportunity to stay in mechanical engineering, but kind of like branch out in computer science by using computer science to solve many problems. So my very first real programming experiences were solving these incredibly complex uh, algorithmic problems in computational theory and design theory. Um, which was kind of like a double whammy for me because all of that theoretical Mickey was new to me as well as the hardcore C programming, which I hadn't done a lot of. And, but, you know, it's one of those things where there is a click in your head. It's like, you just realize I get this and I love this. And that was it. And from the early nineties to here, where we are early twenties now, my whole life has been about computers, one way or another. It was, uh, it's been a fascinating uh, little uh, journey. Still remember the first program I wrote, though. It's fun. What was it? Yeah, it was the Celsius to Fahrenheit thing. It's like I, you know, um, it was a little thing where you know it would take a little input from standard in, take on a number, did error checking to see if it was a numerical value. It was pretty like I was really impressed with myself at 14 years old, you know. And then it would do a reverse conversion back as well. Do you want to go back? from Fahrenheit to Celsius and you would do that. And then the second one was uh, building a pattern using for loops. And um, I wish I still had access to that source code from back then, you know, it was so much fun. Right, we didn't have GitHub back then. No, no. I don't even think we had CVS or PVCS back then, you know. <laughs> so what was your first like major job solving problems? Like you, you talked a little bit about it, you were solving some algorithms, but can you give me more context? Sure. So, uh, in a in a non-commercial uh, capacity, my big first big kind of software endeavor was actually my master's thesis at, at Cornell, uh, where um, the the underlying domain was something called MEMS, microelectromechanical systems. Essentially, these are like chip dimension nano, like nano dimension devices that, unlike chips, which are static in nature, they move. Like you could. You could vibrate a little silicon beam uh, with with voltage and with, with with capacitance and stuff like that. So essentially, the fabrication technology was largely similar to uh, what is used today to manufacture chips. But you had to you had all these movable parts in there, so the failure rate was really high. And what we were trying to do at Cornell was actually a joint research project between uh, professors at Cornell and students and uh, Xerox, which was which, as you know, has been one of the big pioneering institutions in the world, both in computer science and hardware technology, right? So with Park and stuff like that. So I was actually working on a jointly funded project or Xerox funded project to build a kind of semi-automated environment to simulate the manufacture of these devices. The whole goal was to reduce the failure, increase the yield of these products because, you know, we had a failure rate of 95% in the nanofabrication lab at Cornell, like, you know, five, you have Basically, if we manufactured 100 devices, 95 would fail. So we wanted to reduce that. And the way to do that was to kind of simulate the conditions of fabrication through computer, through like 
actual geometric modeling. So I built this massive uh, 3D modeling, solid modeling application that took in uh, kind of um, uh, requirements for the device that you wanted. You wanted it to vibrate at this frequency or deflect light at that angle. It would take in all of these parameters and it would build up a, a, an optimized design for the device and it would simulate the fabrication of it through the five to nine step process that would actually you know, realize the device. And you would see like, okay, if you build it like this, you have a 90, you know, it would kind of spit out like a failure uh, confidence level in terms of like, hey, if you follow this, these parameters, and if you, uh, this is what the device would look like. So it was a big solid modeling program written largely in C and actually a bit of it in Java because we threw a web interface on top of it. This was 1995, so it was JDK 0.92. It had just been released by Sun. Uh, applets were all the rage at the time. So, uh, so I built this like big solid modeling program to simulate the fabrication of these devices, and I built built a Java applet-based interface to actually trigger it. It was so much fun, you know. But that was that was kind of like my first large-scale programming um, effort, if you will, which, among other things, got me my master's degree. So that that helped. And then from a, from a commercial standpoint, my first job out of grad school was actually with an engineering company, Schlumberger. It's a big oil field services company that made hardware and software tools for you know, the shells and the chevrons of the world to basically find out where the oil is. So uh, I worked there, again, largely building uh, what they call interpretation engineering software. So these tools would spit out terabytes and petabytes of data from underneath the earth. And we would build programs to essentially do all kinds of geophysical modeling to tell the clients, is there any, what is the probability of finding oil? It's basically the core of it. There's also a lot of pretty hardcore C and C++ and a bit of Corba programming back then as well. Did you get feedback from them? Like if, if you had a high confidence rating of oil being here, did you ever hear them yeah. come back to you and give you insight? Well, <laughs> Indirectly, yeah, they would, because the way it worked was they would just hire the company, Schlumberger, to go out onto the oil fields with them, uh, with these giant trucks. And they there was like this massive data acquisition software called Maxis that would actually, it was embedded software that was in the tools. So this was essentially, you know, uh, firmware level software, which would gather all of the subsurface data and send it back up to the truck, which is where then our software would take over and start crunching that data and give all the, what they call them logs, these giant graphs essentially of, you know, what's underneath the surface. And then they would, and yeah, of course, I mean, it was, the technology was so advanced that, uh, yeah, we, uh, we, we managed to get quite a few uh, home runs with, uh, with some big oil companies in terms of finding oil. It was actually one of the most fascinating. Now, web development and internet-based uh, software is so it's, it's kind of like the most common kind of software that's built when back then it was so new we felt i felt like i was just doing something some old same more of the old engineering software i wanted to do the old like the new shit the the, the new cool stuff yeah. i want to do java i want to do servlets and stuff but now looking back that's probably some of the most interesting software i've written you know it's uh it's like all the stuff you learn in uh, theory that you learn in computer science, actually you get to deploy. I mean, these days, how many times do you actually write a sorting algorithm as far as part of building a web app, right? But back then you would need to, you would actually need to care about the like computational complexity. Is it 
you know, your big O notations actually played into day-to-day work, not just as at an academic level. So it's kind of an interesting time, actually, back then to, uh, to looking back 20 years. Did did that prepare you well for this current project you're in at Yield Street with financial data? Not really. <laughs> it did in a way uh, because the underlying algorithms like Monte Carlo simulations, they're or uh, any uh, any number of numerical methods that we use for modeling, they're they're pretty. You know, that's there is a substrate of mathematics that is common to a lot of domains. So to that extent, certainly, I think the difference is really in the volume of the data, uh, and um, and uh, at the end of so from a similarity standpoint, they're both kind of probabilistic slash stochastic analyses of you know uh, what um, uh, what can happen or what may happen. Is there oil? Is what's the efficient frontier? That kind of stuff. But a lot of the stuff we write, the code we write now, uh, Yield Street or elsewhere. I mean, obviously there is a lot of data science type of work we do here to model our portfolios and do underwriting and stuff like that. But, but a lot of the other end user facing software is just it's a basic web app, right? You know, there's not a lot of algorithmic stuff going on. And what there is, it's handled by your by your framework. So you're really doubling down on building the most engaging, attractive user interface and experience rather than actually going deeper into. Uh, so the complexity now is more on a scale uh, and traffic standpoint rather than algorithmic. So it's, it's a little bit of, uh, they're both difficult and not easy problems to solve, but just slightly different areas of complexity. Why did you decide to get involved with the Yield Street project? So I've been doing fintech for a long time. Um, so starting like early 2000 and 2003 is when I started doing some serious work in fintech. In fact, it was sort of the startup back in San Francisco where I lived at the time. And I just got fascinated by it because it's it's math, math. I'm not a very good mathematician, but you know, I, I, I love dealing with numbers, like, you know, dealing with algorithms, dealing with, um, just you know, solving complex problems, and there is nothing simple about fintech, uh, at least from a modeling standpoint. So, and I just got very interested in the domain. It's it was a new domain for me because again, like I said, I come from mechanical engineering, and I don't come from that world. But that that first experience with a company called Finiplex, which is actually Mike Cagney's one or one of Mike Cagney's a pretty big name in fintech, uh, you know, founder of SoFi and stuff. Uh, it was it was it kind of just. Uh, hooked me in like in terms of like oh there's a lot of interesting problems to solve in this space so i kind of got into fintech there uh, that way and then over the years since then i've been working in some capacity in on fintech projects uh first uh as um as one of the principals of gordian labs we did a lot of fintech projects me and my co-founders and uh, fellow partners in crime if you will and then um the last 10 years, it's been uh, um, it's been basically just, uh, you know, uh, I moved to New York in two, about 15 years ago, and this is kind of like ground zero for fintech, right? For obvious reasons, I mean, the, the industry is right here. So uh, first at LearnVest and um, and then now at Yield Street, it's just, it just kept going deeper and deeper and more and more interesting uh, to, um, uh, and you would, it's funny that, there are so many fintech startups out there. You would think that the place space is saturated, but there's so much of domain out there. Like the, the footprint of the domain itself is so massive. There is always some unsolved problem, some area that 
is still little an obscure corner of the financial services world that can benefit from broader access, from broader uh, democratization. So that's kind of like from a, was the big attraction for me. Because in general, you get attracted to ideas, to, to products, to companies that are solving a problem that you personally are facing at some level, right? You know, LearnVest started the same way. The lack of access to financial planning for everyday people was why uh, Alexa, the founder, started the company. Millen started Yield Street for exactly the same thing. We are coming off of 2008, all of us, and like we're seeing our market portfolios take a massive 50% hit. And like, what are the choices, right? Well, what are what is available to everyday retail investors outside of the markets? And we are the same basket of ETFs and mutual funds. So, well, there's this whole world out there that's not been that's been untapped because it's been largely kind of like covered by. People, big check writers, private uh, private equity, hedge funds, you know, family offices, that sort of stuff. But it doesn't need to be that way. We can actually deploy technology to improve, to broaden the access to these income generating products, which I could have used in 2008 and 9. You could have, all of us could have used, uh, but simply didn't exist. So when you're trying to solve a problem like that, it's you're just a natural draw. So this kind of hits that triple whammy. It's a very interesting, useful problem to solve. The technology is fascinating. And at the end of the day, it's a solid business model, right? You know, you're, you're, it's, it's an AUM business. So it kind of hit that trifecta of things that I was looking for after LearnVest of when I was trying to look at what my next adventure was going to be. And it just hit it. And I um, was kind of lucky to get introduced to the founders through a common friend. And um, well, here we are. <laughs> yeah, because you founded uh, LearnVest, right? You were one of the co-founders there? Uh, I was not technically a co-founder, but I was right there from the very beginning. So oh, yeah. um, so the, the MVP of LearnVest, if you will, we built out of uh, Gordian Labs, which was kind of this boutique software uh, firm that me and a couple of friends founded. Um, so we did a lot of these, what we call like bench equity projects where someone came up with, came up, came to us with an idea, but hadn't raised any money, but so we just wanted to get off the ground and launch uh, with some minimal uh, MVP. So we did the MVP for LearnVest. And then uh, uh, at the end of that, we, I kind of just came on board full time. So I was there from more or less the beginning, but I wish I'd been a founder. Nice. That would have been pretty sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what big problems are you excited or I guess either what big problems are you solving? Cause I know you like big problems. So you must be doing something interesting at yield street, but often people can't talk yeah. about those. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, so obviously without going into specifics, which uh, I, I can't a lot. Um, I think if you, if you, when you're building a, consumer startup, which is what Yield Street is at the end of the day, which is what LearnVest was. The domain problems aside, and yeah, they have their own complexity and challenges to, to address, the kind of problems you're trying to solve are, uh, they have a lot of portability. They have a, they're very, they have a lot of commonality. You know, you're trying to figure out how to build a platform that, uh, that can scale well if you're widely successful. How can you, um, and, and scale by scale, I don't just mean like traffic scale, although that's a big part, Like, uh, but also like how do you build something uh, where it becomes so widely successful and popular, 
that you need to scale your own internal team like 100x just to support that incoming expense. What we do is like we, it's, you know, we are um, at the end of the day, we're an investment platform. So we have people in house who manage all of these investments for our investors. So certainly we don't, if we go from X to 100x investors, we don't want to go from X to even 10x in terms of our team, which means it's a lot of operational scale that we need to build software for to automate, right? So there's that as well. So, and then, then there is the, there is the team scale itself. Again, that's one of the things that uh, kind of well, was one of my um, learnings from LearnVest days, uh, which kind of carried over into Yield Street is when you're in the technology group at any startup on day, day zero, day one, you're, you're really focused on one constituency, right? Your user, like, you know, how can you build the best possible product for a user? Now, the importance of that constituency never dims. It stays as important as ever. In fact, even over time, if you if you pick up traction, it gets bigger and bigger. But then as your own company grows, there's a lot of internal constituencies that that become part of your stakeholder space. You know, it's like, you know, now... It was just, let's say, me and uh, one other engineer building the MVP, which is more or less what it was at Yield Street. And then we had the two founders and we didn't have like five people, right, you know, back in 2015. But now we have a marketing team. We have an investments team. We have uh, an investor relations team, which is our uh, customer support team. Um, they all need to do their jobs effectively to make the company run smoothly. And they need technology to do that. Now, some of that, a lot of it, in fact, can be can be bought. Like, you know, fine, you need CRM, you can go with Salesforce, you need, you know, marketing automation. There's any number of platforms out there. But all of these involve work that falls onto the technology group. So you're, and then something stops working, the connection between Salesforce and Marketo or our platform and some analytics platform that we're using. It needs to work all the time. And if it doesn't, it falls upon the engineering team. So the idea that the, your stakeholder um, space grows as the company grows is something that, you know, um, a lot of times is not planned for. And I, you know, this, like a lot of my learnings are from things that I wish I'd done in the, in the early days, which is the best kind of learnings. So I wish I had collected all this data so that we would have these insights. Now I wish I'd started data collection from the, from day zero. I, I wish I'd built in logging and, um, uh, uh, telemetry into the core platform right from day zero. Uh, and we would have you been so much better. Um, uh, we would have so much richer insights today than we do right now. So we kind of went, I went through all of this process and previous experiences and I was able to bring them into Yield Street. And so some of those, some of those uh, things are easier than they could have been uh, or less uh, less tricky than they could have been had we not kind of taken some of these steps in the early days. And then uh, it's really how do we, you know, we've been incredibly, you know, successful in attracting uh, investors, especially in this kind of zero interest or low interest environment. People are looking for opportunities to earn yield, right? So uh, we are always looking for new products to build. And every new, and, and by new product, you know, it's not just a new deal on the platform, but a new structure. Uh, because we want to continue expanding our audience going uh, even today, most of the three products uh, are for what's called accredited investors an SEC designation, which uh, requires a certain income slash network levels for investors on security. SEC has these uh, restrictions. But, and obviously we 
stay within those for those kinds of products, but we want to expand our product base so that we can actually cover even a broader uh, audience who, and, and there are other legal structures and um, types of products that we can build for those. Now, each of those also has, comes with its own complexities on the tech side. So we spend a lot of time designing that, building that. And now the tricky part, and this is kind of like a slightly long-winded answer to your initial question about big challenges, how do we build a, an architecture that is abstracted enough to be able to support slight variations of underlying products without having to go back to the drawing board and introduce uh, and, you know, okay, well, we need to genericize this because otherwise we can't support that. So a lot of the architectural complexity uh, today, certainly at Yield Street, but I'm sure we're not the only ones, uh, is about how do we design for a future? How do we architect for a future that is not clear yet because we don't know what direction we want to take pro the product in. We have a very gen good general idea, but the devil is in the details, right? Computers are very unforgiving. You got to tell them exactly what to do. So how do we design our data model? How do we design our microservices so that today they can support all of these debt-based deals, but tomorrow if we get a really promising deal for our investors, which involves a bit of debt and a bit of equity, can we just add equity support to our engine or do we have to go back and build an equity engine like you know those kinds of problems which we often don't have and this is just one example like different industries like, uh, and spaces have their own version of these like having to suddenly be hampered in going in a new direction because your tech doesn't support it right off the uh, or at least requires a lot of rework to to support it we never want technology to be the limiting factor to grow the business quite the opposite. And that takes a lot of architectural design and complexity. So how do you stay on top of this? Because the organizations like this organism and mm -hmm. revenue is driving what you're able to invest in and things like that. So when you're making these design decisions or you're trying to wrap your mind around these things and working with your team, does that involve you being like really close with the executive team and understanding the direction there? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, it's a bit of a lot of different things, and that's certainly one of them. Uh, executive team, all the, uh, and but also kind of like the line managers, if you will. Like you know, we have on the on the what we call the supply side, the investment side, we have experts in various asset classes that we have offerings in, like art finance or real estate, or so kind of knowing what's out there, what what direction they're thinking of going in. And, uh, and kind of looking at the software that we built and seeing like, okay, well, is there any commonality in there? Is there some common substrate? Like today, the Yield Street platform is completely agnostic to the asset class. Like, you know, this the same engine that powers completely unrelated kind of asset classes like art finance and commercial real estate. So, so there's that abstraction that's already built in, but in terms of how do we continue that? We have to kind of like, this is where some of these very key bridge roles come in very handy, where people who are product people who have a very strong domain knowledge, who've been in financial service, who've been in structured finance, who can actually, you know, because as you know, like engineers are, first of all, let's say we are a weird bunch, you know, we yeah. have our own language, <laughs> you know, um, I mean, we're gonna like, like that, but you know, um, but in every, in a sense, every, specialized field has its own lingo, has its own vocabulary, right? And a lot can get lost in translation. So I think aside from having the strategic vision coming from the executives, we also need like, and we have some 
truly amazing people in that in that uh, role where who can who can bridge that gap who speak product and tech who can speak to an engineer and who can also speak to a uh, structured finance uh, expert about what a mezzanine financing uh, uh, model looks like and be able to make those connections and take it back to the engineering team, the, the technical architects and, um, and tell them like, this is what we're talking about. So if we make this configurable and we make that configurable, we can actually support both. Like, so there is that translation layer, which is very critical in, um, in companies like Hill Street, which are software slash technology on a very, very specific and complex domain. I wouldn't presume to say it's easier for uh, abstractions wise for um, e-commerce sites or whatever, but you know, who knows? They, I'm sure they have uh, their own complexities, but finance is a particularly interesting beast because it can get pretty, pretty comp intricate. And uh, at some level, it's just not possible to design for other things. So we have to do things like, okay, well, this covers 90%. There's this 10% long tail. We'll just have an escape hatch for it. You know, we, we there's no configuration set of configuration parameters that can satisfy this. So we'll give you a CSV upload thing. Just upload what the what the thing is, and we'll handle it. We'll just ignore the engine. So you always need to make those kinds of trade-offs because otherwise you'll be constantly building and never shipping. You know, it's the last place you want to be. Yeah. No. I I personally have uh, several years of experience in the financial data as an engineer. And as you're talking about all of this, I'm just like, yep, because <laughs> I, I've done projects all over the place, right? And yeah. a couple of years here in real estate and contracts and financing and like CRM type stuff, and then straight up financial uh, management and asset allocation and predicting withdrawal strategies, which is the most efficient withdrawal strategy given the 10 set of products. And then there yep. could be 50 potential products and then you add theirs and then you enter in the variables for them and they're all, and wrapping your mind around all of that, I found it, uh, it was a little addicting because every time something came up, it was so intricate because these the way the financial world works they just make a product it's like they're sitting around they're risk yeah, modeling exactly. they just make it up and they're like here's the 20 variables that that help define this product <laughs> and here's the outcome of it and here's the lifetime contract value and like the payout and like here's all the here's all the little uh the early withdrawal fees or you know maturity dates and there's just so many things it's uh honestly i went into it built this yeah. incredible software for three years and then my partner bought me out and i can't tell you like a whole lot of details because there's so many different financial products you can buy and they all operate in such a different way and you want to use them for different things and as you compose them for your portfolio you will uh, it's just it's it's uh it's almost like making music it's kind of like beautiful <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's like, don't you think like, you know, the, 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 the technical or architectural brainstorming that goes into like distilling that to, okay, well, there's too much stuff here. If you keep whittling it down and simplifying it, what is the atomic piece that you bring it down to? So if you design for that, if you find your atomic Lego block in a way that, or set of Lego blocks that you can then just combine in different ways. That's the dream, right? That's not always possible, but that's kind of like some of the most fascinating architectural discussions we have at Yield Street where it's like, okay, well, we have like these four things that see that are kind of sort of similar. At the end of the day, we are generating yield for investors. So at least that's in common, but 
how what what do we distill it down to in a way that not only will it solve these four use cases, but the next six use cases that'll come along that are slight variations of these. So I mean, and I I, I think this is where uh, past foobars come in very handy to teach you. Like, okay, well, don't do that. You know, remember what happened back then? Like, so. Uh, so the, the the second roadie is always for me. I mean, I, you probably feel the same, but you know, this the second time, second go around, when you see things that and you get the sense of deja vu and you remember the pain that you felt because you didn't you didn't just fire that one event which would have helped you down the line. You know, it's like it's such a cool feeling. I love it. The it, that's the, the beautiful thing about getting older is understanding the value of experience and just like genuinely appreciating it. Something that's like impossible to do at a younger age, and you can't even really. It's like having kids; you don't yeah. know until you actually do it. Uh, but when you start Absolutely. to experience that, you're like, "Oh, we just saved six months by not going down that rabbit hole." <laughs> no, exactly what I'm talking about. This is uh, yeah. So I have a theory. So I think in the financial space. I think it's the uh, you have you have so many opportunities to have aha moments. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's those realizations from all the uniquenesses of trying to wrap your mind around specific products, and then you because as you were speaking, I I was what was running through my mind was the three years I spent where like all day I would be in a financial advisor's office, right. And just mm -hmm. learning about the products and watching them sell to customers and and all of these things and then going back at night and like writing code. And then you did that for a year or two and then built a team and then finally grew it out. Yeah. But uh, yeah, those moments of just sitting there like in frustration on the whiteboard for like the 10th time, having this guy explain to me how this product works. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it, it was those. And then, and then getting it though, the, cause the reward that, that dopamine, I think, I think it's dopamine, that dopamine <laughs> hit you get when you're like, it, yeah. all the dots connect and your whole brain lights up like some led Rubik's cube, you know? Yeah. You just run this algorithm. You see that line of numbers and there's this like Excel spreadsheet with the numbers that it's supposed to be getting and that match up to two decimals. And it's like, yes, yes. I did it. We got it. it. We you got know? it. Yeah, try try writing a program without testing and financial services. <laughs> <laughs> right? So That's a scary thought. What's what's the what's the long term like mission? Is it making making these investments more accessible to broader market? That is that has always been, and this is one of the things that I love about Yale Street. And and uh, having been at startups for a long time, it's not it's actually surprisingly not as common is a truly well-defined and well-solidified true north, right from day zero. Like I have the pitch deck from 2014 that uh, Melinda, our founder and CEO, showed me it was this bar in the Lower East Side where you know, um, he said like, okay, well, it, it, we didn't even have a name then. It was just like the new code deck, which I'm sure you've seen thousands of. And there was this, this, this um, vision slide in there, which kind of laid out a five to six year roadmap for what eventually became Yield Street in terms of what are the products that we will build, uh, what are, what, what are, uh, and ultimately what is our mission? And that mission, exactly to your point, has never changed. It's to democratize access to these kinds of funds, to build, um, uh, to build a, a, an avenue for everyday retail investors to diversify their uh, uh, their 
investments and ultimately achieve their financial goals. So when you have more choice, when you have more uh, options, when you have, you're able to, you know, uh, you don't feel pigeonholed, obviously that's one thing, but it's this very specific gap where, you know, you have to choose between volatility or low yield. And that's just like a, it's, it's just a very bad choice because it's, it's, you, you're really kind of, kind of playing this. And then you come up with these kind of heuristic models of, okay, how much should be in cash and how much should be, but there is this entire third option, which is still fixed income with a higher yield. There's no risk-free investments, of course, like, you know, short of a, a, of a CD or uh, an FDIC insured account, there's risk everywhere, but how do you diversify that risk? How do you put, a, how do you, balance out the volatility of the public markets and the low yield of the of the cash accounts with a third option which kind of combines the best of two but with its own set of risk of course risk of course this is such a this is such an important thing for people to have access to and that was kind of like the mission from day zero to over time increasingly democratize this access and provide it to an ever and and not just democratize in terms of uh the number of people or uh, investors certainly that's a big big part but really at what point in your financial life do you start getting access to it these kinds of products historically even today you're you have to kind of like you're in your 50s or 60s and most of your debt's been paid down and you know you have like some um, some fairly stable assets like a home or whatever, and then you have some investable capital that you can now start deploying into these kinds of things because of the higher check sizes needed. We wanted to re- to bring that down. You know, it's like people are, um, you know, uh, especially you know millennials. I'm sure you've seen a whole any number of infographics that shows just shows the level of debt that millennials are inheriting or uh, coming into the working uh, into the working fold uh, under. So just kind of like making sure of doing everything we can to make this access available to a broader audience at a lower age, at a younger age, so that they can start generating income much sooner than they, and like passive income much sooner than they historically had been able to. So that the mission has not changed. We kind of take a few turns in terms of whether this product is right or that product is right or this structure is right, but ultimately that's what we, that's the long play. Eventually, the, the the vision is to kind of like provide um, not only the the optionality, the channels to invest in, but also a, a layer of like uh, services on top of it. Like, you know, that, that says, okay, we'll help you figure out. So we have a bank, we have a product called the Yield Street Wallet, which is basically a bank account, right? You know, so today, largely it's used to fund your investments in Yield Street, but that's, it's a, it's a straight up bank account. You can use it to pay bills. You can use it for direct deposit. You can use it for any number of things. And ultimately, if we can take the platform that we build and expand it out in a way that reduces financial friction in people's lives, that would be a huge win for us. And all of the bits and pieces are in place. Like this is one of the interesting things about you know, fintech. Certainly, is a lot of these kind of building blocks have become commoditized now. Like you know, the Betterments and Wellfronts were amazing trailblazing companies, but now what they provide is available through an API play. You know, so anyone can build a betterment like product on top of these APIs. Anyone can build a banking product on top of this API without needing to be a bank. And you see all see them all around, Robin, uh, you know, Chime and uh, Stash and all of these uh, truly great companies. Uh, so the building blocks are being commoditized. So there is a big opportunity to ultimately 
uh, simplify people's lives, financial lives, by giving them not only the access to all the different things that they could benefit from, but also giving them guidance on what is the best way to do it. So essentially bringing together the world of planning with the world of investing with the world. of, And we're certainly not the only people trying to do it, but I think we are kind of very interestingly positioned because of the diversity of the products that we have the ability to provide today just on a single platform. Consolidation will always be a big friction reducer, right? So if I, <clears throat> if I don't have to go to five different places to do five things and can do at least four, if not all five of them on a single platform as a consumer, that's an attractive proposition for me. Do you see yourself at all, like you mentioned, the infrastructure plays, right? Of them building mm-hmm. the bank account infrastructures and those types of things. So you can use their services to build on top of. At the same time, it seems like what Yield Street's doing is making the like higher end investments, the accredited investor investments uh, more accessible at a younger age. So do you see yourself as like laying the infrastructure for that type style of investment and in the future people will build on top of Yield Street? Um, strategically, I can't say what we plan to do, but we have the, because <laughs> <laughs> honestly, on this particular angle, even I don't know, it's always from one of the things, but I can tell you this, that from a pure technology and infrastructure standpoint, we are already set up to do it. You know, so, and that was always something that, uh, another thing that was a learning from, uh, from LearnVest days of building in things like multi-tenancy and things like that right right from the get-go. So we have the ability to do it, whether we will. It's certainly something that we've considered and um, we'll just see. No, I, I like what you- We have the legal- Yeah, <laughs> we have legal team on the call. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, right? Like, you know, the way modern systems are built with the front end and the back end and the infrastructure, in effect, every- company every software platform is an api platform yeah it's just that the apis are not public you know they're just used by themselves but every, we're all api plays at some level right you know so that's what i meant like you know it's it's not a you know, whether that's a monetizable product you know who knows i'm sure at, at some level of uh adoption it would be you know betterment had been around for eight years i think before some company like Drive Wealth came along, or maybe a little less, but you know, which is basically, you know, they might as well just have taken Betterment's APIs and made them just an API play. It's essentially what it is. It's very valuable. So, which makes you wonder, actually. <laughs> yeah, that. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, like, you know, it makes you wonder about all of these like disruptive companies uh, because a lot of the fintech disruption is really taking an old, existing, archaic space and bringing it into the digital age insurance you know all of these are potential mortgages and it's like better lemonade all of these they're all api players you know they could be i love it because it's almost like they're using the technology as the excuse to give the people what they want right it's a you could normally mm-hmm. not do mortgages this way if you were to just open up a building and say we're going to do a mortgage company we're going to do it this way but if you yeah. I think like Rocket Mortgage did something unique where, you know, you could raise a bunch of money and get a bunch of people involved with like this new future and you realize like how much you can do and how many resources are available and how much energy there is. And as you get more experience, you can understand how like put these parts together. Mm-hmm. Very like Elon Musk-ish, right? Where he's like, all right, what's the yeah. cost of this raw material? Let's overcome this hurdle of expensive batteries, you know? Exactly. <laughs> It's a nice, uh, it's, a, it's a very, uh, very, never thought of that that way, but you're absolutely right. That's a very good parallel. <laughs> so are you doing any uh, angel investing right now? 
little bit, yeah. I don't have a. I wish I had more angel investable capital, but uh, no, I do. Uh, there are two areas that are very close to my heart. Uh, one, obviously, it's fintech because I just know it, so I'm I'm, a, I'm in a reasonably good position to evaluate the merits or lack thereof of a potential company. But I really care very deeply about health tech, uh, digital health as well. In fact. For uh, about a year between my LearnVest time and my YieldStreet time, I was actually, I teamed up with an old LearnVest friend of mine to to start this uh, digital health startup. It's kind of on the shelf right now. I hope to get back to that someday. But it's kind of like, you know, uh, a mint or personal capital, but for your personal health insurance rather than your financial accounts. So same idea, you know, aggregate um claims data and and coverage data and actually provide like a unified it's like a fun thing to build uh and we spent about a year uh, working on it but that's an area that i think is absolutely screaming for i hate using the word disruption just because it's too heavily used but just simplification like you know deobfuscating it for everyday people health insurance in particular but health in general Health insurance is accessible because it's kind of like the intersection of health tech and fintech. But there is in these two areas, uh, I, I'm kind of like very interested in you know doing small amounts of angel investments. Um, I've done a few. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able, <laughs> I'll have a little bit more capital to do some more. Uh, but no, I do. I I do do I do a lot more advisory stuff than direct investing, and some are a bit of both. Uh, but um, but yeah, and then a little bit just uh, personal hobby type investing. Like I just invested in a in an independent indie motion picture. You know, it's just I always wanted to be on a set, so I right? this is one way to do it. <laughs> so problem solve right? a little bit yeah yeah you want to be on a set let's go invest in a movie i want to talk <laughs> yeah, to great it's... people let's start a podcast you know <laughs> hey it works so what are you learning right now as as a leader because you lead you lead the engineering team there and you're always dealing with people and you're growing you know um i of all the of all the experiences that I learned from, from the LearnVest days that I brought over into Yale Street, hopefully largely in a positive slash helpful way. One personal experience that I more or less forgot to bring over uh, was the ability to, well, let's say I did bring it over, but not in enough measure, is the ability to kind of step out of the weeds. Because one of the things about how a CTO role evolves over the life of a startup from, if you're a founding CTO, your job on day zero or day one and a job post series B or whatever, when you scale to a certain point is phenomenally different. And, um, uh, and the toughest part uh, is to let go, you know, to kind of like trust your people to, get the right people, get people that are way smarter than you. And I can safely say that we've done that at Yield Street, like, you know, all of, and not just like the leadership in tech, it's just like every blast engineer is like, you know, I'm humbled by the quality of our team. But you're still a geek at the end of the day. And, you know, we want to look at the Kibana logs or, you know, you want to tail, uh, run tail on some server log or just get in and look at a PR and, um, uh, at this scale, I probably 
should stop doing that. <laughs> but it's hard to kind of react myself away from it just to see like, you know, and for me, it's kind of like a, an educational experience because we went through this major re-architecture and I'm like old school and like, you know, when I was actively programming, it was like the old days of CRUD and SQL databases. And like, you had to go through a lot of hoops to create a cluster. And, you know, I don't know if you remember the old EJB days, but now like the whole world is different. It's like, I, like I almost like I'm envious of the people on my team who get to code and all these amazing things like CQRS and event sourced uh, microservices and like Kafka is the source of truth. And like, man, I wish Kafka existed when I was actively programming. So, so like, I think the, 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 the thing that I'm learning is that how little, how to be okay with the fact that you don't know everything. You're responsible for a whole bunch of software, a whole bunch of technology that you don't necessarily understand that well to the to the to the kind of like the atomic level. Like, you know, I can look at a PR and kind of roughly understand what's going on, but then I still try to find a little time to program here and there. But the getting into that comfortable space, and this is typically true for people like us who are engineers who become CTOs who are just used to doing it, right? So being responsible for something that you're not building yourself and having that trust in the team that you've put together, it's an adjustment period. And um, it was tough. It was a little tricky for me back in LearnVest. And uh, it's, it's certainly a lot easier here, in part because I brought some of my old LearnVest people over as well. But um, but it's, it's something I'm learning every day. And like every time I get on a call with our... Uh, head of infrastructure or some of our architects. I'm like, I just want to sit there and listen to you guys because this is amazing. You know? Yeah. You, it's, you want to like come in and, and, and see the team you put together operate, you know, see, see your work happening. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was like, it was interesting uh, discovery that like, you know, when, when you're of like three or four person team, you're actively programming, you're designing, you're doing the deploys and shipping. There's no Ansible, there's no Terraform. It's all manual. And, the first month, but when you're in a meeting and, um, and this is also the thing uh, that I had to, I'm still getting used to is when you say something and I was told this by some of my, some of the leaders on my team, it's like, okay, well, I know you were just voicing an opinion and a total, totally justified opinion. But when it, when you say it, it comes across as, okay, stop doing what you're doing and do it this way. And I'm just wondering, hey, can it be done this way? So this like kind of implicit megaphone that you get, which is simply not something that you're used to as a founding CTO because you're all huddled in a garage or like this one co-working space and you're just cranking out code with everyone else. And there's it's a completely level playing field. And uh, at, at a certain scale, it stops being that. And you have to kind of tell yourself like, okay, get out of the weeds, get out of the weeds, you know, and uh, be careful where you make... And it's just a weird place to be for me anyway, you know, it's like, because I always wanted to be in the weeds, hanging with the, with the engineers and knowing what they're doing and contributing an idea or two. And I still do that, but it doesn't come across as just an opinion or an idea. It's a lot more than that. That's, that's kind of one of my biggest adjustment areas, if you will. <laughs> yeah. It's about what you want and, and what, where you're best suited in the company. So there's, everyone always asks, what, what's the responsibilities of a CTO? I'm like, oh man, here we go. 
so, <laughs> but like, as you said, it, it changes drastically based on the business model, the stage of the business, all of these different things. But one of the interesting like patterns I see is that the people who do like to be really hands-on uh, yeah. usually situate themselves in this office of the CTO model where they'll hire like a great like head of engineering to sort of perform like the day-to-day of running the engineering org. And then they'll sit in this corner with like eight people either solving problems for the engineering org, like from like an outside perspective or doing like, you know, moonshots, like new projects and testing new things out. So they'll, they'll still get to be in that small room with those few people you know, in the weeds, but at the same time, they've made sure to cover for the responsibilities that they need for that, like VPE or whatever role you want to call it. But they, it doesn't matter what the label is. It's that there's the human performing that function of, of leading that side of the org. And then they have this little subset uh, called office of the CTO. And I've, I found that uh, really fascinating too. That is a great idea. Yeah. Hey, thanks. That's, that's going to be on my 2021 uh, strategic roadmap for, let me see if I'll run it by our CEO, see what he thinks. I love that. Like we had some notion of it, but we always kind of struggle with this thing. Okay, well, they're building, it was, it was less of special projects. So it would be great to do that, but it was more kind of like cross-cutting. So we have all, we have a bunch of pods, if you're like scrum teams, basically a bunch of different teams working on various parts of the platform, but there's always this foundational layer of things that needs to be built that is cross-cutting, right? You know, whether it's a caching infrastructure or uh, a standard way to talk to Kafka, like, you know, any number of the document management. We always kind of like struggle with what I used to call the two-yard problem. We build all of the stuff with this, exactly the kind of team that you're talking about, like, you know, the SWAT team of like two or three super senior people. And we would build all of that. And then we would bring it all the way to the 98-yard line. And then just kind of like taking it from there to actually shipping it involved this knowledge transfer process, which we kind of always struggle with. So. So I think um, I think a, a straight up special projects kind of team would be actually a very interesting uh, evolutionary step for the engineering org. And frankly, obviously, us and any any company would massively benefit from from that because you need to, right? I mean, this space was new when we started, but now it's getting quite crowded. Like there's a lot of alternative investments platforms out there, and you know, and it's good. Like you know, choice is always good for consumers, but we got to stay ahead of the curve and those kinds of projects or teams are valuable for that. Yeah. It's how you can step out of the day-to-day of the value you're bringing the market exactly. and look, look a little bit of he- ahead. Cause like right now, I bet like, you know, we're looking ahead like on nights and weekends when we have a spare moment or something and can do some research, but if it becomes, you know, and I think another important thing is, um, and I'm always reminded this by like the VC firm that works with me is they're always really focused on like, am I doing the thing that like lights me up? Obviously discipline's a play, but I'm like an overly disciplined person. So we're always trying to pull me into like the don't kill yourself, <laughs> like relax a little <laughs> bit or make sure you enjoy what you're doing. So uh, yeah. yeah, so pulling me back from that uh, and making sure that I have a recurring event in my calendar that, that triggers every three months. That's just like, it asks me three or four different questions about like, you know, what's your energy level with, with you know, like your weeks and like how you're doing? Are you excited about what you're working on? Is there, you know, an item on your plate that's taking up, you know, more than 30% of your time that you can delegate out uh, and, and just constantly reevaluating it changes in every season. Right. But when you're yeah, excited, sure. when you're pumped up, when you've got that energy and that like, you know, spark in the morning, uh, 
that's how you serve the company best. Yeah. And it's contagious too. Yeah. It it just kind of like spreads out from there. But no, I mean, it's a very interesting question. Like, you know, how do you, what's your job as the CTO? And I think like at this stage of the company, I would basically say that it's, it really is to get out of the way, provide air cover to the team and get out of the way. You're, you're you're serving the team and and the tech org best by just leaving them and just making sure they have the environment to do their best work. And only running interference when they ask. So it's kind of like an intro-based model where you're not just like actively involving yourself on a day-to-day basis, but but you're really coming in when someone needs some kind of conflict resolution, whether it's architecture or people or whatnot. But in the rest of the time, just just checking in to make sure everything is all right and making sure that should something happen, we got their back. So just feel free to be, you know, you know, mistakes are always welcome as long as you learn from them. Uh, in fact, I encourage, like I get suspicious when I interview people and they say, I've never had a production crash. And it's like, well, sorry, I mean, you're probably not the right fit, man, because that's uh, that's the best kind of teacher you'll ever have. So, but really it's it's providing the air cover and getting out of the way. And that's, that is an adjustment, like I said. So, but I'm actually coming around to it. It's fun. Yeah. It's fun to see the team that you built doing well. For sure. I, I was so surprised if I look back on my past because I was so obsessed with engineering and best practices and learning, yeah. reading all the Martin Fowlers and all like you know, every, you know, getting so interested in, oh, what's the new book? What's the new way of thinking and structuring and organizing? And then I got, I started to, you know, grow teams and manage people. And what I realized is I can take those like foundational concepts of organizing code and systems and processes and help apply that with like a human element. And now we can orchestrate people together. And then you feel like a gardener and then you realize what you can and can't do. You're like, all right, all I can really do is like create a nice environment where great things can grow, but I can't necessarily always like dictate exactly what will grow or how it will grow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like overwatering a plant basically. Right. You know, when you start like, you know, (laughs) that's micromanaging overwatering the plant. We're going to write a gardening (laughs) management and gardening (laughs) book together. It's so it, it's crazy that there's so many parallels. Like you know, you can you can describe programming or technology in terms of so many different things. Like we just picked like gardening. Like wow, like there is there is a metaphor for programming and literally everything out there. It's amazing. Art of War, another great place. Yes. <laughs> it's like everything's a system, and this is systems engineering. Yeah. So it's like the ultimate analogy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Fun though. Oh man, this is great. We made a podcast. How do you feel? I loved it. This is so much. We should do it again. I had so much fun. Yeah. Was there anything we didn't get out for Yield Street? Like any call to action? You go to Yield Street and sign up or? Uh, uh, no, I mean, I think uh, uh, the, the one thing that I uh, would be useful to call out is like we, we write about our experiences in the product and tech org. Uh, we have our technological distributed dot yieldstreet.com. So you should check it out too. It's 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 uh it's new, so we don't have a ton of content on there, but we do try to keep a certain cadence of publishing on that, you know. And it's across our product team, a design team, a data team, and and our engineering team. So that's pretty cool. So distributed.yieldstreet.com. Dot com, yeah. So it's kind of like a play on like distributed. It's a distributed system. When we when we return money to investors, it's a distribution. So you know, it's a little. Boom. Geek humor. Fine. It's like financial <laughs> tech geek humor. Yeah. I like, can never get, get away from the bad dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it though. <laughs> yeah. 
This was so much fun, Joel. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Thank you so much. Talk soon, buddy. All right. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.